Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're multitasking. But what if you could also be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. So multitask right now. Get your quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Actually, man, um, it's, it's complete silence and, um, because um, our first concern is Tua. And um, at the end of the day, man, um, you know, football, you know, it's, it's a game. But, you know, we're human beings you know, outside of this game, and we all have feelings. So um, in that moment, I think you saw how everyone felt about Tua. Uh, he's, you know, captain on his team and a leader, and um, guys have so much respect for him. So, you know, the, the silence, man, was, you know, just guys showing their concern. That was Dolphins quarterback Teddy Bridgewater who entered the game last night following a head and neck injury suffered by starter Tua Tonga Bailoa. The show is PFT Live, presented by Google Pixel. Learn more at googlestore.com. We say good morning to our audience on Peacock, Sirius XM85. We are live today on Sky Sports NFL in the U.K. and in Ireland. Peter King is with me. I say, Peter, good morning. Welcome back. Great to see you on another Friday. We've got some important things to talk about today before we pivot to the far less important subject of what happened last night in the game and what will happen this weekend in the remaining games. Mike, I think this could be a seminal moment for the National Football League because clearly uh, what happened five days ago is that the NFL, through its program, uh, including the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant on every sideline of every NFL game, looked at Tua Tonga-Valoa after he got up wobbly from a hit where his head hit the ground, got up wobbly, had to be helped from the field, and then uh, it, at the, that was late in the second quarter, and at the start of the third quarter, he came running out to play football. And so everybody said, wow, what's going on? What's happening? And the NFL obviously said, hey, we have an unaffiliated 
neurotraumatic consultant at every game, and he tests the players on protocol for head injuries and head trauma. And if he passes that concussion protocol, uh, that head trauma protocol, he gets to go back in the game. Okay, fine. He goes back in the game. And then Tua Tagovailoa gets hit again uh, Thursday night in the game. And it was uh, a significant hit, obviously, for those who saw it. And his fingers start twitching. His arms start twitching and moving in, in odd ways. And so we soon learn that this can be a result of such an incident, such a concussive-type blow. And so the reason I say this could be a seminal moment for the NFL is that the NFL, I believe, needs to further examine its uh, return-to-play protocol and needs to basically say that if a player walks off the field wobbly and appears to the unaffiliated neurotraumatic consultant that there are some uh, possible head trauma, uh, there is a head trauma situation in the case, regardless of whether he passed the tests or not, he should not return to play that day. That, to me is what this, the last five days, tells me. You're absolutely right. And I want to go back to Sunday because it sets the table for what happened last night. I spent a lot of time on Sunday afternoon reviewing the concussion protocol, communicating with the league office, trying to understand what happened, why he was allowed to return, and then, as the NFL Players Association got involved, what would happen going forward. And here's the key aspect of the concussion protocol that needs to be considered very carefully. And I have unanswered questions that I posed to the league multiple times on Sunday. And they didn't answer me. And they still haven't answered me. And I assume they haven't answered me because they have to answer to the NFLPA. When a player demonstrates what the protocol calls gross motor instability, and we all saw it after Tua Tonga-Vailoa had his head hit the ground on Sunday. He got up. He was wobbly. And then after that, He has to be held up by a player. We see the wobble there, and then he keeps walking, and a teammate comes up and actually holds him up. That is gross motor instability under the concussion protocol. As the policy is written, Peter, the player cannot return unless the team physician and the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant both conclude that the gross motor instability did not have a neurological cause. My question to the league that has still not been answered What did they do to come to the conclusion that that was not neurologically caused? Because we all saw it. We saw it. We know it when we see it. We saw it, so we know it. When Mike McDaniel, the head coach of the Dolphins, after the game says, I thought it was a head injury too. Yes, so did anyone else with functioning eyes. We all saw it. So how did they find a way to wedge Tua in this loophole of wasn't a neurological cause because if it was if it was he can't return he can only return if they conclude there was not a neurological cause so what did team physician and unc do to come to the conclusion did they study the film did they study it carefully did they just take to his word for it's my back don't worry i'm fine you can trust me i have no i have no skin in this game 
I don't care if I play or I don't. Come on. We can't listen to players in situations like this. We should have learned that by now. And if we didn't, we know it now. We can't say going forward, well, yeah, we'll just listen to the player. But what did they do, Peter, to come to that conclusion? They haven't answered that question. They'll be answering it within the context of this investigation. And the investigation is important now because it takes on far greater significance because if he had been ruled a no-go in the concussion protocol parlance on Sunday, there's a good chance he wouldn't have been playing on Thursday night. And that's the real question. Should he have been playing on Thursday night? And the broader question the NFL needs to reckon with is whether other players should have a higher bar for playing on Thursday when they're injured on Sunday, regardless of the injury. Is that enough time for certain injuries to recover and play again, whether it's back, ankle, rib, shoulder, but most importantly of all, concussion and head trauma? Do there need to be bright lines that have no loopholes that apply no matter what in these situations? I think that's the real question the NFL has to ask because it seems like, Peter, anytime there's a loophole, somebody finds a way to shove a camel through it. Yeah, Mike, I think once you saw the video on Sunday and once you saw the gross instability, and it wasn't necessarily when he first got up and just shook his head like he was trying to get the cobwebs out. It was obviously the second time when he got up and almost fell over. And that, to me, basically says to to a team, to anyone, that that person should not be involved in an athletic contest for the rest of that day and not again until he passes very stringent standards. The one other thing I guess I would say about the whole thing, Mike, is that this really reminds me of the bad old days when remember how a player would say, oh, I, I, it wasn't my head. It was my neck. I just had a lot of pain in my neck or, you know, my shoulder. I, I was, you know, my shoulder was really bothering me. And that's why I was making those motions out there that some might consider motions uh, common to uh, concussive effects. And so, and in the old days, everybody would say, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, all right, just go play. Now, because so many players over the years abused that because they just, it was a badge of courage to go back in the game. So many players really abused that that not until the Ben Roethlisberger incident in Seattle uh, when they were down eight points late and he voluntarily took himself out of the game because he just couldn't see straight. That's really about the first time or, or one of the first times that I remember in a competitive environment uh, a really good player taking himself out of the game and just saying, hey, it's not worth it. I don't know what the future holds for me, but I'm not going to risk going back in and playing with what is likely a concussion. So to me, I think there needs to be even an extra layer here. Not only the unaffiliated neurotraumatic consultant on the sideline, but also the ability to simply say that if you have this gross instability, if you're wobbly, if even for a moment you appear to be punch drunk, your day is over. 
And I remember the Roethlisberger incident, Peter, you did a great job working that story, but you and I had the conversation at the time. You may not remember this, but my point was Ben Roethlisberger is one of the very few players in the NFL who has the luxury of tapping out. Most guys can't do it. Most guys can't say, I choose to not play and give my backup a chance to play better than me and keep me on the sideline indefinitely. Ben Roethlisberger knew he was playing no matter how much time he missed due to his belief that he had what the Steelers used to famously call or notoriously call concussion-like symptoms. And I think the easy fix to the concussion protocol is there's no longer an exception. If you have gross motor instability, it doesn't matter what tests you pass in the locker room. Gross motor instability needs to be treated the same as the fencing posture. A lot of people got a lesson last night in what the fencing posture is, and we've seen that happen to players in the past. Case Keenum had it in 2015, a very bad situation for the NFL where no one bothered to take Case Keenum out of the game after he was in the fencing posture, which, as Mike Ryan, NBC Sports Medicine analyst, explained to Al Michaels last night and Al Michaels explained to the audience, because Mike Ryan is part of the Amazon broadcast, The idea that the fencing posture is a reaction to neurological trauma. It's involuntary arm and hand reaction to neurological trauma. We saw it. We're not going to show it to you. It was troubling. It was difficult to see. But when Tua's head hit the ground last night, we immediately saw it. That is a no-go. No matter what protocol you pass, no matter how healthy you are deemed to be later, you're not coming back into that game. Easy fix. When we see gross motor instability, we're going to treat it the same as the fencing posture. That's the easiest fix they can make because someone somehow found a way to check the box that it wasn't neurologically caused when anyone with common sense would have concluded that what we saw on Sunday was neurologically caused. How could it not have been? It wasn't his back. It wasn't anything other than his head. And I'm not calling the guy a liar. I'd have said the same thing if I was in his situation. I want to play football. It's my back. I'm fine. Let me play. Let me play. I'm. I'm. It's I the understand Buffalo the risks. Bills. It's the biggest game that you've right. ever played in your NFL career. That is why players say, "I'm fine. I'm fine." They want to play in the game. They've been training their whole lives, including in major college football, to play in games exactly like this. You think they're voluntarily going to want to come out of the game? They have to be forced to come out of the game. This has been part of the reality from the moment the NFL had its concussion epiphany October of 2009 when Commissioner Roger Goodell and NFLPA Executive Director DeMora Smith were hauled to Capitol Hill and forced to answer tough questions, and the message was clear from Congress. You have a problem. You clean it up yourself, or we're going to do it for you. And the NFL immediately commenced the process of cleaning it up. And, Peter, there was a time, and maybe we need to go back to this time, where it felt like the default was any player who was diagnosed with a concussion missed the next game. Maybe that needs to be a hard and fast, non-negotiable rule as well. That'll get a lot of people pissed off, but at a certain point, we have to accept it. And that's how it was at first. And then at some point around 2012, 2013, the presumption that the guy's going to miss the next game shifted to, well, if he, yeah, boy, if he passed the pro, oh, he's, oh, he's always making progress. Oh, 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 he's passing the protocol. Oh, he passed, passed the protocol to return to practice. Okay, good, good. Well, oh, passed the protocol to return to the game. And now we see a guy get a concussion on a Sunday, and he's back the following Sunday. So I think they really need to go all the way back to square one and revisit this because I fear 
that exceptions may be swallowing very slowly and very methodically the rule here. And even though the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant is not on the payroll of the team, the UNC is still part of the broader system. And I think this is the next conversation we need to have. In 2009, it was acknowledged, hey, the team can't be trusted to take care of its players because the team wants the player on the field. So let's get somebody independent involved. Well, okay, the league can't be trusted to be truly independent and neutral here. So some of these UNCs may be thinking, I can't start saying this guy can't play, this guy can't play, this guy can't play, or they're going to find another UNC because the system wants the great players to play. It's not just the teams, and we need to acknowledge that. The Shield wants its best players out on the field to maximize ratings, to maximize interest, and to maximize dollars, Peter. That's the next step in this evolution in sensitivity to head injuries. One of the biggest problems that I see, Mike, if the NFL does take another step and basically bans a player with gross mental instability uh, from uh, playing in the, in the game the rest of the day, the biggest problem that I see is that that would have erased a great, great football game. Now, I'm not saying Teddy Bridgewater could not have come in and played credibly in the second half, but I do not believe that Teddy Bridgewater would have beaten Josh Allen head-to-head in 35 minutes of football. And Tua Tonga-Valoa did. And that is what is going to be the price that the NFL will have to pay. Now, and that's my point, though. That's why the UNC. But, Peter, let me just say this. That's why the UNC is suspect now. It's not a truly independent person because this person is hired as part of the mechanism that knows, oh, shit, we're going to lose one of our best games of the week if the starting quarterback can't come back. Maybe there needs to be somebody who's truly independent of the NFL who's making these decisions. But they don't want that, Peter. They don't want to give up control over their sport. But maybe that's where we need to be where it's someone who is completely, and and I don't know how you get there, but it has to be somebody who's completely disconnected from the process who is making these decisions. But the league would never stand for that because they want to have ultimate control over all of these decisions, especially when they're potentially going to lose a key player from a key game. Yeah, and, you know, Mike, the other thing I was going to say about this, I think a lot of what you say is correct. And again, I don't want to put, you know, without knowing anything really about the granular details of what happened at halftime of this game that allowed Tua Tagovailoa to go back in the game at the start of the third quarter. We don't know the granular details, but it is almost, to me, unimportant what the granular details are. Because now that we've seen particularly what Sunday hath wrought, you know, Sunday hath wrought Thursday, and we saw what happened on Thursday. And so whether, Tua Tagovailoa, whether it was absolutely exactly what he said, that his head didn't hurt, it was his back, okay? And I think there aren't a lot of us that are going to you know, swallow that without some real proof. But even if that is true, we need to get to the point where 
the NFL basically says. If the NFL, look, Mike McDaniels has said three or four times in the last four or five days that basically the health of his players is paramount. And I truly believe that he believes that. But if his doctor and his unaffiliated neurotraumatic consultants say to him, the guy's okay, he's totally clear, well, Mike McDaniel's going to put him back in the game. But if you say that the health of the player is, is paramount, then you have to begin to err on the side of caution, even if it's going to cost you a football game. And so that's why, to me, that there needs to be another step taken in this process and that is to sideline all players who show signs of being wobbly, show signs of being punch drunk, who show signs of gross motor instability. Those people, their days have to be over. I think that's the first step that at this point is a given, that the circumstances mandate. The broader question is beyond making gross motor instability a no-go with no loophole for letting the player continue if the UNC and the team physician conclude that there was not a neurological cause for the gross motor instability, what else needs to be done? What else needs to change to evolve this protocol and the application of it toward a spot where players truly are protected against what would be the worst-case scenario, Peter? And this is what we're trying to avoid. One head injury followed by another because that second one, And I think I saw the phrase, and the term is second impact syndrome. That was trending last night. That's what kills high school kids every year. There are, and I haven't seen the numbers recently, but back eight, nine, ten years ago, it was 13, 14 high school players per year died, and there was one fairly recently. Somebody sent me the link within the past ten days of a high school player dying from undiagnosed head trauma and a second head injury. That's what the league needs to avoid. That's what all levels of the sport need to avoid. And the league fervently hopes that the efforts now will trickle down to the lower levels. Good luck with that. There's a certain amount of it that's not going to happen. Because you truly need a strong, independent voice to grab someone by the horse collar and literally remove them from the field. But that's the risk at the NFL level. And, Peter, I don't know if you saw this, but I brought back – Some quotes from Carson Palmer to you. 2009, you went out to Tahoe and had a roundtable with all of the great quarterbacks in the game at the time. And Carson Palmer said to you, and this this was a big deal when it was posted, September 8, 2009. The truth of the matter is somebody is going to die. Carson Palmer said that. And you wrote that it was Ben Roethlisberger, Carson Palmer, Tony Romo, Matt Ryan, Aaron Rodgers. They all got very quiet. And Carson Palmer elaborated. Now, to the league's credit, because the epiphany came a month later. The league woke up a month after Carson Palmer said what he said at the direct behest of Congress. But that is the ultimate goal here. Yes, long-term, you want players to not have cognitive issues, obviously, but you don't want somebody to die on the field. And if you have a guy that's got a head injury, that has been cleared somehow, some way, loophole, activated, and exploited, and player is back on the field and has that second head injury, he could die. And that was my first fear last night when I saw what Tua was going through after his head hit the ground. We saw the fencing posture. We saw the stretcher. He had, well, okay, you know what? They were wrong. He did have a head injury on Sunday, and now he's got another one. And what's going to happen inside 
of Tua Tonga-Vailoa's skull. What's going to happen? So, you know, it's great news that he's okay, but that doesn't change the concern because the next guy may not be. And if the next guy's okay, the next guy after that may not be. There's too much of this, oh, it's fine until it's not. We talked about this yesterday with all the people they put out in the hurricanes, the reporters. The moment somebody dies out there, it's never happening again. Well, why don't we stop doing it before somebody dies out there? Same idea here. Why don't we be more careful about the things that could kill somebody before somebody actually gets killed? Because if it happens, Peter, it won't be an evolution of the concussion protocol. It will be a revolution of the concussion protocol. Well, it might be a revolution of the sport of football. To the point that uh, you know, colleges start dropping programs. If the ultimate safe space for for football players, where there are more guardrails in place than at any level of football, which is the National Football League, if somebody dies at that level of football, well, what would you think if you're running a you know a middle school program in Wichita, Kansas? Uh, they can't even protect their guys at the highest level. What are we doing with our kids? So that is one of the reasons why the NFL, and look, Mike, you know, the NFL right now is doing things like trying to get flag football to be an Olympic sport. The NFL is now, you know, rejoicing in the fact that uh, they're trying to get flag football for girls to be an interscholastic sport in several states, including California. And so, you know, they, they're seeing this, this rush of people to play football, even, whether it's flag football or tackle football, whatever. They're seeing more and more people who want to play football. So that's probably the biggest reason of all. The NFL's worried about the future. They're worried about future viewers, and they're worried about future players. They're worried about the future of football, as they should be. Every sport should be. Every business should be. I get that. So that is one of the reasons why something will come of this. If I'll say this. If something doesn't come of this, something, a tangible change doesn't come of this, I think the NFL is stupid. I well, just do. And- You know, everybody in America has seen in the last five days exactly what has happened. Everyone. And so now everyone, a nation turns its lonely eye to you, Roger Goodell. What are you going to do? Well, and it really does go all the way to the top. It really does. And will there be an overreaction? You know, I thought last night and I tweeted this, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs over what happened tonight, whether they deserve it or not. Some may deserve it. Some may not deserve it, but they may get caught up in the tidal wave that's coming. Given that Tua was released from the hospital last night and flew back to Miami, which means they confirmed there was no internal bleeding. I mean, it could have, a lot of people were saying, well, wait, what's he doing flying? And and I even thought, why not just keep him overnight just to be 100% sure? And I don't know who's calling the shots there and who's making the decisions at the University of Cincinnati Hospital as to whether or not he can and can't go and all of that. But that gave me some concern because what we saw last night would suggest maybe we just monitor the guy for a while, but 
again, they've got their protocols, they've got their checks, but we're questioning the very foundation of the NFL's protocols. So I, I kind of have my doubts about any of these. Like, how exact is anything when we're trying to figure out whether and to what extent somebody's had a head injury? But now the question becomes, do we see an overreaction? And maybe a certain amount of overreaction is good. I'd rather see an overreaction than an underreaction. I don't want the ultimate no response here to about be, it. well, two is fine. Two is fine, so it's fine. It's all good. And I wonder about this investigation now with the NFL and the NFLPA because it's going to become an exercise in PR, internal politics, labor management relations. Are we really going to get to the truth? Are we really going to get an unadulterated, unsanitized, honest assessment of what happened on Sunday? Or is it going to be a lot of people covering their asses? That's my concern. My concern is we may never get to the truth on Sunday now because the truth about Sunday looms so much more largely, Peter, over Thursday. Yeah, and and look, you talk about an overreaction, underreaction, all that. Mike, there has to be an overreaction to this. Uh, or I, let's just, there has to be a significant reaction to this. This can't just go away in a flurry of statements uh, and somebody saying the unaffiliated neurotraumatic consultant is this, that, or the other thing. It's not time to play the defense game. It's time to play the action game. It's time to appoint a committee of whoever it is, who's who's the best concussion specialist at the Mayo Clinic, who's the best at the Cleveland Clinic, Who's the best at the hospital for special surgery? You know, let's get the people who are the best and just simply show them these plays and the test results and what doctors ruled about at every step of the way and just say, is this right? Is this wrong? What do you recommend we do? This is what needs to happen now, at least in my opinion. We've come a long way from having Paul Tagliabue's rheumatologist in charge of the NFL's brain health program, the Mild Traumatic Brain Injury Committee, which was convened in 1994 and spent 15 years, frankly, covering up and concealing the short-term and long-term effects of head trauma, which is a shameful stain on the history of the NFL and the NFL Players Association because through all of that Fainer-Wada reporting from 10 years ago, The one thing that was never emphasized the way it should have been, the union had a seat at the table the entire time. And the union clearly has a seat at the table now. We heard from D. Smith last night. He texted during the game to Andrew Whitworth and Richard Sherman, both involved in the union. Whitworth in the past, Sherman currently, that the union will pursue every legal option, including referrals to licensing authorities regarding the doctors who cleared to a Tonga Bailoa to play on Sunday. And, and that's fine because that's part of the problem. But the deeper issue is the protocol and allowing these loopholes to exist, creating a scenario where they can be exploited and failing to understand the human dynamics that will cause people to err on the side of letting guys play as opposed to erring on the side of making them sit. Peter, this has been the issue for years now. In a key game, like in a Super Bowl, remember when Julian Edelman was kind of banged up in a Super Bowl? It was Super Bowl 49, I think. It's like, well, they should probably take him out and check him. I mean, 
you got all these people that got their finger on the button and nobody wants to press it in a moment like that. Nobody wants to be the one that takes a key player off the field in a key moment of a key game. That's the struggle that the NFL has. And we've seen it in those settings while a game is unfolding. Now we have to wrestle with it more broadly. When a guy has had an issue on a Sunday, should he be back on a Thursday under any circumstance? When a guy shows any gross motor instability, is it automatic that he is out of the game? We know he's going to get checked. Okay, fine. They weren't going to leave him in the game then and there. We've, we've, we've come that far in the past 13 years. But are we at the point now where any gross motor instability and you are a no-go, the same as if you show fencing? That, that, again, we've talked about that. That's a given. The question is, how much farther do they go? And I think the questions are, how long is the mandatory absence for a player? And should there be a truly independent voice that is disconnected from the shield? Because the shield itself has motivations that are similar to the motivations of the team and the player, which is best players on the field for the best games as much as possible. That's something that's going to be very difficult for the league to strike the right balance on, Peter. And you know what, Mike? You know, we all talked and kind of waxed eloquently about the game in Miami on Sunday. Uh, what an incredible sports event it was, truly. And what an absolute battle to the finish. And how crazy it was at the end. And, and uh, you know, obviously the emotion that was involved with Buffalo losing at the end. And obviously you see the offensive coordinator up in the booth, you know, going crazy after the game. That is the kind of game, that game is one of the reasons why everyone in this country who loves football truly loves football. The competition, the fight to the finish, the guys going out because they're cramping up. Everybody is needing IV fluids. It's like it was an absolute 15-round Donnybrook that people talked about for days. The problem is there's a human cost to that. And look, we, we will talk in the next segment about how, in my opinion, the Miami Dolphins should have been 10-point underdogs in this game. You know, I don't care with Tua, without Tua, because they played an absolute playoff intensity game. Then I had to get on a plane at 8 o'clock in the morning three days later and fly to play another game against the defending champion of the conference. So, you know, that is a huge enough argument to, to, you know, against Thursday night football, which everyone loves, but there's a human cost to Thursday night football. We saw it not just in exhaustion, but obviously we saw it in Tua Tonga-Valoa last night. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why I think the broader questions include whether the bar needs to be higher for letting players play on Thursday night. Do the rosters have to be bigger? Maybe they do. Will it cost money? Yes, it will. Will the owners have to dig deep and deal with that? If they truly care about avoiding these kinds of issues and questions, that's exactly what they'll do. After the game last night, I want to play some of Mike McDaniel, and he's in a tough spot here because, as Peter said, He's limited by the quality of the information he's getting from team physician and the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant. Mike McDaniel isn't a doctor. 
And Mike McDaniel ultimately is responsible for the team. Now, I, I, I did raise this point last night. The owner's suspended, so the person ultimately responsible for the team isn't even there. I don't know who has the ultimate call on whether or not Tua Tonga-Vailoa plays in the game, but let's assume it's the head coach who's in charge of the team. Here's McDaniel last night being peppered with questions about why Tua was playing and whether he did indeed suffer a head injury on Sunday. That was an emotional moment. Um, that is not part of the deal that anyone signs up for, even though you you know it's a possibility in, in football to have something that you have to get taken off in, on a stretcher. Is uh, you know all of his teammates, myself, we were all um, very very concerned. So the the best news that we could get is that everything is checked out. Um, that he didn't uh, have any anything more serious than um, a, a concussion will be uh, he'll be flying back with us here on the plane yeah otherwise we would have reported him having a head injury I mean that's that's why the NFL has these protocols um, and there's not like every single NFL game that is played um, there's an independent specialist that specializes in the specialty of brain matter so um, yeah, the, um, for me, as long as I'm coaching here, um, if there's in, uh, you know, I'm not going to fudge that whole, that whole situation. If there's, um, any, any sort of inclination that someone has a concussion, they go into the concussion protocol and it's very strict without, without, um, yeah, people don't vary or stray. We don't mess with that, never have, and as long as I'm the head coach, that will never be um, an issue that you guys have to worry about. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. If if I would have, that would be irresponsible in the first place, and I shouldn't shouldn't be in this position. I don't think that his – an injury from last week – uh, made hit, made him fall the same way this week, you know. Um, but yeah, I, I I do not have any, like absolutely zero patience for or will ever um, put a put a, posi- a player in a position to, um, for them to be in harm's way. Yeah, there's a lot there, and I want to say something about what he said near the end, and this is one of the dangers of speaking extemporaneously. The idea that the injury from last week made him fall a certain way last night, that makes no sense whatsoever, and I love Mike McDaniel. But you've got to be careful when you're speaking extemporaneously on a sensitive topic like this. This isn't about whether or not the injury on Sunday contributed to what happened last night. This is about whether or not the guy was playing with a head injury that was undiagnosed. And he said at one point early in the clip we played, If he had a head injury, we would have said so. Well, they did say so. He was initially listed as questionable to return to the game with a head injury. That was the official disclosure from the Dolphins during the game last Sunday against the Bills. So, look, he's in a tough spot because, again, he's only as good as the information he gets. And he said independent. There's an independent brain specialist. This is the question that I vow to drill down on. Hey, League Office, get ready. You're going to get an email from me. It's going to be a long one with a lot of questions as to who these people are, who hires them, 
who evaluates them, who pays them, how they get the job, how they keep the job, what the factors are in paying them and keeping them and hiring new ones and getting rid of them. All of those things. I'm going to ask a long list of questions, Peter, because I think that's the new focal point. How independent are these folks? How unaffiliated are they really? Whose interests are they serving? We all have somebody we serve. We all have somebody that we know we have to keep happy. Who are the people or persons or person that the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant has to keep happy so they remain employed in that position? I think that is part of what we need to do going forward as, as in our capacity as, you know, we're not necessarily stewards of the game, but we're people who are responsible for posing tough questions to the stewards of the game. I think you should copy me on that email. I want to read the fuming Florio. Um, All right. But I would, I guess, I guess I would say about uh, about the process that's in place right now is that I think the process is well-meaning, but I also think, and you can't account for everything, okay? But my feeling is the reason why I call this a seminal moment at the start of the show because I do believe this is a seminal moment for the National Football League and for Commissioner Roger Goodell, for all 32 owners, for all 32 head coaches, and for all 1,696 players. The reason it's a seminal moment is that there are times when you see something that truly is wrong and you you can't fall back on, okay, this is the process we have to correct what went wrong. The process didn't correct what was wrong. So now you need to add in another step on the ladder. And this step, you may need to add three steps. But the first step that must be added is any time that a player has gross mental instability or or is wobbly or appears to be punch drunk, that player's day is over. And that, to me, is... Not an easy fix. I, I, I don't, nothing about this is easy. But that has to be the first thing that happens here. And then after that, I do think there need to be an independent uh, group of the best concussion specialists in the United States. There, need to be, there needs to be uh, you know, a summit with them, with the NFL. Uh, they've got to spend some money on this. And they've got to basically look at everything about the NFL's process and figure out, is there anything that can be done to improve it? You know, that's an excellent point. And for me, the things that stand out are, should there be an automatic disqualification? Not that that's the right term because the player did nothing to deserve to be sidelined, but an automatic uh, for their own good, for the player's own good, for the sport's own good, you will miss one game after you've been diagnosed with a concussion for an injury that happens during that game, especially on a short week. Is there some hard and fast rule? Can we eliminate some of these loopholes? And also taking a closer look, as we've said, at the people responsible for determining whether or not the loopholes will be exploited. How independent is the unaffiliated neurotrauma consultant? These are all things that the NFL must explore for the good of the game, for the good of the players, and to ensure that maybe lower levels of the sport do indeed take more steps to emulate what's happening in the NFL. We need to take a break. Before I do that, let me say a couple of things. Number one, 
There were some technical issues on Sky. You may not have heard Peter for the first 10, 15 minutes. The podcast will be available. You can hear everything that Peter said. And you're going to want to check it out because Peter said some great things. So if you missed any of what Peter said and you were listening on Sky, you can get the podcast and hear all of it. For the folks listening on Sirius, apparently there were like six commercials that aired during our A Block, which has never happened before. Don't know why, don't know how. Check out the podcast. It will be uninterrupted, and you can hear anything you may have missed when whoever was pressing buttons to run commercials when we were having one of the most important conversations we ever had in the history of this show. Let's take a break. When we return, we'll focus on the game from last night, the Bengals and the Dolphins. And we've got plenty more PFT Live to come, presented by Google Pixel. We'll be right back. Remember the Thai cave rescue? What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit AirForce.com to learn more. Expected just because we, we got a great team, man. I love this team. I love everything about them. Uh, they, they didn't hesitate for one second after those first two weeks when all the noise was getting loud about the expectations. All that, they, they didn't let that affect them for one second. They just came out there and answered the bell and responded two consecutive weeks. Um, and so just really proud of them on this stage against that team. That's a really good football team. They're going to win a lot of games. And I just thought they really handled every moment in this game exactly how we needed to, especially in the second half. Turnovers, capitalizing on turnovers with touchdowns, um, special teams stepping up big. And uh, that was just a great way to win a Thursday night game. Zach Taylor, coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, after last night's 27-15 victory by the home team over the Miami Dolphins. The second half was kind of a weird experience because it just kind of felt to me a little flat and hollow while we were waiting to hear more about Tua Tonga-Vailoa, the players to their credit, and they've got no choice. The game goes on. We see that from time to time. A player suffers a potentially serious neck injury, is immobilized on a backboard. It takes 30 minutes until the next snap sometimes. And the players just have to keep going. They have no choice. I saw some tweets from former players about that last night. They have no choice but to keep going, and the players did. And uh, it, it felt like it affected the, the Bengals more than the Dolphins at first. The Dolphins with Teddy Bridgewater had a bit of a spark, Peter, but in the second half it just was kind of a methodical thing where the Bengals regained the lead and pulled away. They, they just ultimately couldn't cover the Cincinnati receivers. Xavier Howard left with a groin injury. And uh, it felt like Joe Burrow was just uh, back there doing target practice and the Bengals gaining enough yards, scoring enough points to get the two and two with a 27 to 15 win. It was an odd, <clears throat> excuse me. It was an odd game, obviously, especially after Tua Tonga-Valoa went out. But three things occurred to me. Number one, as I said in the last segment, you cannot expect an NFL team, good, bad, indifferent, to play well after the game that the Miami Dolphins played on Sunday. You can't expect <clears throat> a team to come out on Thursday and have a top performance when there's absolutely no way they can be fit, ready, 
and thinking of this as uh, you know as a as a prime game <clears throat> because some of their defensive guys play between eighty and ninety snaps in ninety five to hundred degree heat index and okay so we've gone over that so that is one thing about this game that I'm not saying it bothered me but coming into it I wish that the Amazon people had discussed this a little bit more than very much fleetingly, very much in passing. This was the biggest factor in this game, period. You know, at least until Tonkavaloa went out. That's number one. Number two, Mike, the most amazing thing about where the NFL is right now on September 30th, okay? Do you realize that two years ago, entering October, the NFL had seven unbeaten teams. Last year, entering October, the NFL had five unbeaten teams. This year, entering October, the NFL will have one unbeaten team, the Philadelphia Eagles, who face a surprising challenge in the Jacksonville Jaguars at the link on Sunday. And the last thing I would say is, look, I'm not saying that the Bengals' problems are over on the offensive line because they still had a few shaky moments last night. But I asked my friends at Next Gen Stats, I've got a partnership with them this year, to give me, if they could, the pressure stats on Burrow through the first four weeks. And I've written a lot about this and I've talked a lot about this. But Burrow was sacked on just one of 32 pass drops on Thursday night. And he was pressured only seven times on Thursday night, which is average or maybe slightly below average. So there is some evidence, some, I don't know how much, but there's some evidence that the Bengals might be starting to get it right on the offensive line. Well, and this was an issue that was first flagged by Bill Belichick after the dramatic changes to the collective bargaining agreement in 2011 that reduced off-season workload, reduced intensity of practices, in training camp and now we have a reduced preseason down to three games it takes a while for teams to get to where they are and what they will be and the first month of the regular season is in many respects for plenty of teams and for specific units on teams where significant change has happened in the offseason that is your preseason the month of september was for the Cincinnati Bengals offensive line, their preseason, the starting five, to get into a rhythm, to get into a groove, and they managed to do it last night. Now, whether it continues remains to be seen. It's a week-in and week-out proposition. You made the point, the excellent point, about the possibility that the Miami Dolphins' defense, which was on the field for 90 plays on Sunday, may not have been in a position to do much of anything by way of putting pressure on that offensive line. That is part of this. And the idea that there's only one undefeated team, this is, to the extent we're mentioning former commissioners today, this is Pete Rozelle's vision from 50 years ago come to fruition. It's his dream. It's his dream. (laughs) He hated – I remember that was one of the first, like, news items unrelated to the scores of games that I became aware of back in the 70s, that Pete Rozelle hated the fact that it was the Steelers and the Cowboys and the Raiders and the Dolphins. And nobody else had a chance. And he hated that. He wanted parity. And now, here we are. And you're right. By Sunday afternoon at 4 o'clock Eastern, there may be no unbeaten teams in the NFL, Peter. 
Hey, look, you know, I looked at the standings today, and I believe I'm right in saying this, Mike, but there are 29 teams with either one loss or two wins or two wins, two losses in one win. And, you know, a couple of things, you know, there are ties involved there. But it's amazingly even. And it's why, to me, if I'm Josh McDaniels, I stand up with the 0-3 Raiders. I stand up in front of my team. And you know what I say today? I say, listen, nobody is really great. And that is why I don't want you to listen to the noise on the outside that says, Oh my God, their season's over. It's a debacle. They're 0-3. They can't come back. They can't. Of course you can come back. You're only two games out of first place. There's 14 games left. You can come back, and I'm not saying they will, but I'm saying anybody who, and again, I don't mean to diminish the importance of specific games, but anybody who says in week four of the season, well, this is a must win, you're you're smoking something. It's not a must. <laughs> there are no must wins in week four. None. Zero. The Raiders don't even have a must win in week four. Can you imagine saying that someone's season is over when after four weeks they're three games out of first place? With 13 games to go, you're three games out of first place and people say your season's over? Get a life. You know? I mean, anyway... This is the ultimate egalitarian season in the National Football League. And I've been saying for a while now, these wins in September are just money in the bank for what's to come. This is the prelude for teams that will be dramatically different, better or worse, but they will be dramatically different when January rolls around. And, you know, I've said for years now, the goal is to be in the conversation at or around Thanksgiving, and maybe early December now that there is a 17th game. But how many times do we see that team that is sputtering along at 500 that finds the gas pedal right after Thanksgiving and just takes off and feels that urgency of, you know, we really can't lose many more. We've got five losses. We can't really lose many more. It's time to treat the rest of the regular season like the postseason. My point is there's going to be a lot of teams in that bucket. And and who knows? That's going to make – that's going to make the month of December and January even more exciting. It's going to be a scrum for those, those 14 playoff spots. There's going to be some good teams that get left out, but it's going to be some exciting games to come as we set the stage and build toward what should be an exciting finish to the season if the teams continue to be jumbled up. And, Peter, one of the teams is only – one of the reasons, excuse me, there's only un, one undefeated team. I mean, we've seen some crazy outcomes where and, – and Sims and I – broke this down for both the Bills loss and the Chiefs loss, where like nine different things go not their way. One of those things goes their way and they win the game. But that just shows you how crazy it can be in the NFL. The talent is sufficiently packed together that you're the better team, but you make enough mistakes, you're not going to beat the team that is supposedly worse than you. So that's one of the reasons why it's jumbled up, and, and it may be one of the reasons why it continues to be jumbled up. And, you know, Mike, one of the other things about this particular season, I wrote about it last week, you know, why have there been so many low-scoring games? Why, as of last Monday morning, 
was scoring down five points per game. Now that is a lot. Why is it that when Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers play each other, it is a 14 to 12 game? Why is it that in a Russell Wilson game, the game is 11 to 10? Why are these things happening? And I do believe that one of the tangible things, especially early in a season, is that you're seeing more and more teams play this old, what I call the old Vic Fangio defense. And the Vic Fangio defense, in essence, is you play two deep safeties, and those safeties are not running around as the, at the snap of the ball, okay? Those deep safeties are just sitting there, and they're not giving the offense any pre-snap reads. And it's almost like as soon as the ball is snapped, because oftentimes a really smart quarterback like Aaron Rodgers is going to, at the snap of the ball, as soon as he sees the first step a safety takes, he's going to eliminate where that guy is going. And, and, I'll, and it's a perfect example. The Logan Ryan interception off Aaron Rodgers on Sunday. He was playing the deep safety. He didn't move before the snap of the ball. He didn't move on the first tick when Rodgers was looking at the secondary. And he finally moved when he saw where Aaron Rodgers was going. He jumped the route and got an interception and killed one of the Packer drives. My only point about this, Mike, is that every year in the NFL, there's some twist. There's something new. There's something happening by more teams than usual. And I think this year, even though the gross number of plays with two deep safeties It's about the same as it was a year ago. What is changing is the pre-snap reads and the post-snap reads, quite honestly, just simply are not the same as they have been, let's say, three and four years ago. And, you know, there's some basic wisdom to that. Force the offenses that haven't really had a chance to get in rhythm to execute and work their way down the field methodically because chances are they're eventually going to hit a fourth down. They're going to make make a a mistake. The yeah. Bengals lost their first two games. They could have won both of them. They both went right down to the wire. They rebounded nicely from starting 0-2. Joe Burrow last night had 287 passing yards and a pair of touchdowns. T. Higgins had 124 receiving yards and a score. Jamar Chase was held to 81 because we expect a lot more than that from Jamar Chase at this point. Joe Mixon had 61 rushing yards. The first touchdown of the night got stonewalled near the goal line later in the game. Vaughn Bell, a couple of picks. And uh, that was the way the Bengals, a total team effort, defense stepping up when it needs to, Joe Burrow getting the ball to his guys. And as I said earlier, it got easier in the second half because Xavier Howard went out and those defensive backs for the Dolphins could no longer cover the Bengals receivers. And Peter, to the point you made a few minutes ago, may have something to do with playing 90 snaps in 90-degree weather on Sunday against the Bills. You know, the one other thing to think about when watching this game, Mike, you know, what happened in the first 40 minutes of this game? Let's say 35 minutes, probably. What happened in the first 35 minutes? The Bengals did not look very good. They got, remember a couple of times, like on that fourth and one, the wide uh, run by Joe Mixon, the horrible, end sweep. Horrible call. He got nailed. Horrible call. A horrible call. Horrible. But just remember... It's, it's crazy to think about that on September 29th, the darlings of Southwest Ohio 
are getting a smattering of booze at home in a huge nationally televised game. But there was a smattering of booze last night at times. So, and I'm not saying this to try to be uh, a negative nabob here, but I am going to say it. And that is the Bengals benefited from the Miami Dolphins playing the most draining football game that any team has played this year so far. And that team getting on a plane uh, three mornings later to come and play another football game on national TV at a very, very high level. And look, Miami was hurt, obviously, by the loss of Tua Tonga-Valoa, clearly. But I think the Bengals benefited from an exhausted team, especially in the second half, not being able to put up the kind of fight that normally I think a team would have been able to put up under regular rest and without injuries. Hey, look, that's the NFL. Nobody's crying for anybody. I get it. Sometimes you benefit from that. Sometimes it bites you in the rear end. I get it. All I'm saying is the Bengals benefited from that last night. That's a great point, and I would be remiss if I did not at least give you a mild golf clap for the Spiro Agnew modification to the nattering nabobs of negativity. One of the most underrated quotes of all time. Of all uh, time. But, but you know, you're right. I remember, remember when they reduced overtime from 15 minutes to 10 minutes because the Buccaneers played 75 minutes on a Sunday and had to play on a Thursday night, and it was a crap show against the Falcons on that Thursday night. So and and look and this this goes back to the point we talked about earlier. I mean Thursday night football is not going anywhere. They may make some revisions to who can and can't play on Thursday night. Thursday night football is here to stay. If we didn't already know that, I mean it's kind of baked into the 11-year Amazon billion dollar per year contract. But these are issues that are going to come up from time to time. Yeah, no one's ever going to play 75 minutes, but they may play 60 minutes in 90 degrees and be on the field for 90 snaps. And then they got to turn around and play. And, and then you throw in, you know, the hurricane kind of making things discombobulated. They go to Cincinnati a day early. They're practicing in an environment where somebody was filming their practice. We still don't know what the hell that was all about at the University of Cincinnati. That just kind of bubbled up and disappeared without a whole lot of analysis. But the, the Dolphins were in a tough spot last night. You're right. And I bet somebody who spends a lot of time analyzing all these factors and wagering money on it made a nice little profit last night on taking the Bengals and laying the points. Teddy Bridgewater came in and had 193 passing yards, 14 for 23, a touchdown and a pick. Tyreek Hill, big game for him, 160 receiving yards. Um, but, you know, it just it, – it, it worked at times. There was that nice long pass from Teddy Bridgewater to Tyreek Hill. That was a moment where it felt like the Bengals aren't going to win this game. The Dolphins are going to be the ones who respond yeah. better to the – injury to Tua Tonga-Vailoa than the Bengals did. Uh, and, you know, Teddy's a guy that they probably were getting ready to play because of the back and ankle injuries we already knew about, and Teddy's no slouch. Teddy can play. So I don't know how much time Tua is going to miss, and hopefully he misses exactly as much time as he needs to for everyone to be completely sure that he's healthy and safe. But, you know, Teddy can still get it done if they have to go with him. It's a nice ball. He got it out there. It wasn't underthrown. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, they still could have won the game with all the things that, that you talked about, all the factors weighing down the Dolphins. They still had a chance to win this game.
you know, I like the fact that Teddy Bridgewater showed when he went in this game. And he didn't play a complete game, uh, you know, for, for the time he was in there. But he made some big throws. And that was obviously the biggest throw. And I don't know if you noticed this, Mike, but last week against Buffalo, and I watched that game pretty closely, when Teddy Bridgewater came in the game, Tyree Kill's body language says, oh, come on, dude, get the ball to me. You know, there was a couple of times when Tyreek appeared to be unhappy that he didn't have Tua in there with him. But last night, I think that what Tyreek Hill showed is that, look, if you just get a quarterback who can throw the ball a long way, nobody is going to overthrow me, okay? Just throw it as far as you can. I'll go get it. And that's what he showed last night. Well, hey, look, Tua had a long ball to Tyreek Hill early in the game, and it was underthrown, and it was picked off. And we've seen that. We've seen that. And it's, it's, hard, it's hard to not underthrow a guy as fast as Tyreek Hill. But Teddy did a nice job of getting the ball at least close to not being underthrown. You can't overthrow him. Uh, and uh, this Dolphins team will still win plenty of games. The Bengals will win plenty of games. There's a lot of good teams out there this year. And uh, it's, it's going to be an exciting season from the standpoint of week-to-week, game-to-game, fight-to-fight between teams. We really don't know who's going to win. And hopefully they stay packed together and as many teams are as, as alive as possible hey, Mike, into January. Yes, Mike, when you've got the Detroit Lions averaging 32 points a game in the first three weeks, you know it's going to be an odd year and some weird things are going to happen. But... I think what we're seeing early on in this season is an absolutely is setting the stage for an absolutely unpredictable last three plus months. We'll help you set the stage for a very good week four in the NFL, headlined by the Chiefs and the Buccaneers on Sunday Night Football. More PFT Live presented by Google Pixel right after. Remember the Thai Cave Rescue. What about the mission depicted in Black Hawk Down or the epic rescue shown in Captain Phillips? You've probably heard of all of these, but did you know that the U.S. Air Force Special Warfare played a pivotal role in all of them? These airmen are the most highly trained warriors on the planet. Other forces like the SEALs and Army Rangers call on them to provide skills no one else can. Not many people make the cut. If you think you can, visit Airforce.com to learn more. 